This video is part of an audiobook series featuring The Spirit of Leadership, Liberating the Leader in Each of Us by Harrison Owen in 1999. For more audiobooks, please visit my YouTube channel, find me on Spotify, or visit my website for downloads. Chapter 12, The Spirit of Leadership, The Leader's Spirit. I have an Indian friend and colleague who is the vice president of human resources for a large hotel group and is currently consultant and university professor. Like many of his peers, my friend grew up in a Hindu family and until the age of 12 or 13, went through what we might now call the consciousness-raising program common to the Hindus. He also participated in Western-style education through preparatory school and university. When he had completed his course of study, along with many others of his generation in India, he found the old ways somehow not in tune with the business environment of the late 20th century. Quantitative methods, behavioral science, and a variety of other approaches had much more to do with the bottom line. Then, for reasons that have never been shared with me, he made a remarkable discovery. As effective as his business school methods were in manipulating and interpreting the bottom line, the bottom line became positive and meaningful only in a context of inspired human performance. When spirit was up, good things happened, and when it was not, no amount of number crunching was going to change the result. My friend realized what I have been suggesting here. Spirit is important. My friend made another discovery. Spirit was not only important in general, but the quality of his own spirit was critical to whatever he called his job. From this point came a final realization that all those childish things that he put away shortly after reaching the age of 13 were probably the most important foundations for his professional life. My friend is not alone in his discovery. Some miles away, on the islands of Japan, a new leadership school has been established. Entry into the school, as in all schools in Japan, is a matter of fierce competition for those who gained admission are expected to constitute a critical piece of Japanese leadership, corporate, governmental, and social. One might suspect that the old view of leadership is very much operative here, for the selection process is elitist in the extreme. But the program of the school is remarkable. It has four parts. Part one is Zen. Part two is everything one might expect to receive in a good business school. Part three involves a year-long journey to some other part of the world to see what is going on. And part four is a return home to ponder the significance of what has been experienced. It seems that matters of the spirit are also primary to the Japanese. In the United States and Western Europe, one may gather an infinite number of similar stories. In some cases, they describe a return to earlier religious traditions, when, as for my Indian friend, it is discovered that the childish things of long ago have striking new relevance to the present day. In other cases, the tales relate explorations under a number of different banners, ranging from the human potential movement to transpersonal psychology. I am reminded of a seminar I held for a small number of Dutch executives in the mid-1980s. I was trying my best to gently edge the conversation into a consideration of transformation and spirit. After about 20 minutes of going around the barn, Jean-Pierre Goupin, the managing director of a global corporation, put up his hand with some impatience. Stop, Harrison, he said. We all know spirit is important. The question is what to do with it. To a surprising extent, I think that Goupin's presence or premise has been accepted, and we are now seriously about the business of dealing with this question. 
So what can we say about the spirit of leadership or the, le the leader's spirit? First and obviously, spirit is the point of interconnection between us in our leadership mode and our fellows. It is through our spirit that we participate in the realm of spirit. This is our birthright, the commonality of our collective being, the basis from which all of us have not only the opportunity, but also the responsibility to lead. It comes with our humanity. There are, of course, a number of ways to ensure that the capacity for leadership remains stillborn. At the simplest level, we can deny the presence of spirit and define our world exclusively in terms of the bits and pieces of our experience, the forms and structures that constitute everyday life. Such a definition locks life into its observable state, with predefined chains of command and levels of authority. In this case, only those at the top possess the necessary power and control to make a difference. We may also abort the appearance of our unique leadership capacity by becoming enmeshed in the age-old discussion about the origin of leadership. Is it nature or nurture, born or made? The possibility of discussing this to death is a given, and we should and should we resolve the issue in favor of nature and birth, we may find ourselves excused from the leadership role. I suggest that the distinction is false and that the answer is both. To the extent that we are, and spirit is, we have everything we need to begin. What happens after that is up to us. The capacity for leadership begins with our humanity, but it grows only with practice and intention. There are no magic bullets or guarantees when it comes to developing our capacity to lead with spirit. Four elements have appeared critical, however, in my experience. One, learning about spirit. Two, experiencing spirit. Three, practicing leading with spirit. And four, reprise. Learning about spirit. It is odd, I think it is odd that some do not know the world of spirit. This is awesome for sure, but it is hardly strange, for, ma for the material on the subject is so voluminous as to boggle the mind. Indeed, I think the case can be made that until fairly recently, even in the West, virtually everything of substance, written or thought, had to do with spirit, the manifestation of spirit, or of humankind's life as spirit. If sometimes a subject has been approached obliquely or with unfamiliar language, I don't think the authors are to be blamed and certainly cannot be faulted for lack of effort. The, inherently difficult, the inherent difficulty of the subject should not surprise us, for in truth, it is hard to get mind and words around something that defies comprehension and transcends verbal description. It might be noted in passing that contemporary physicists have faced similar problems with comparable results. They have had the audacity to postulate a world that could neither be seen, touched, tasted, nor smelled, and then with outrageous persistence, they have proceeded to describe it. To the uninitiated, the writings of the physicists seem bizarre to the extreme. The mysteries of mathematics aside, the thought that serious people would devote their lives to the study of odd beasties like quarks, neutrinos, and other inhabitants of the subatomic world is peculiar at best. Few, however, would dismiss the validity of the effort simply on the grounds that it is hard to understand. The same may be said for spirit and for the efforts of those who have made a life study of the subject. In truth, we know an enormous amount about spirit and its operation, but it takes real effort to assimilate that knowledge. In matters of the spirit, those who refuse to do their homework will have a doubtful grasp of the subject. Are we then to substitute the knowledge elite for the power elite? Yes, in the sense that there are guides who may be followed. 
but also no, in the sense that the basis of this knowledge is somehow hidden from the general population. Unlike the physicists, we do not need to have access to a cyclotron or super collider in order to join the club. Spirit is everywhere, available to anybody who chooses to be open to its presence. Furthermore, the basic manifestations of spirit are simple in the extreme. We may see it in the lover's touch or in the grief of the bereaved. It does not take a graduate degree to perceive its presence. But when one comes to questions such as, what does it mean? Where is it going? And what do we do with it? We may do well to consult the work of those who have been there before. All of which brings up the inevitable question, where do we start? The answer is basically anywhere we like, and more usually, right where we are. You may discover, like my Indian friend, that your discarded tradition is, in fact, a valuable resource. To find out how valuable, you might try a little exercise in which you ask, what is it they, the church fathers, rabbis, gurus, and so on, would have thought they were doing if they had thought what they were doing made sense? It often turns out that we are, in our youth, took to be idiotic, ob what we took to be obvious, idiotic obfuscation is actually quite useful. In my own case, I don't think it will come with any surprise to reveal that virtually nothing written in this book is without precedent in the traditions of Christianity, Judaism, and their predecessors in the ancient Near East. The whole concept of grief work assumed early form in the dying and raising God motifs from that area, we, which were subsequently reformulated in the story of the crucifixion for Christianity and of the exile for Israel. The story of spirit has been around for a long time. If your own tradition seems barren, try the tradition of another, perhaps from the Far East or the Native Americans, but don't be surprised if you find entry rather rough going. But then you wouldn't expect to understand quantum mechanics on your first day in class. If you stay the course and don't give up on the first time you run into an unpronounceable word, be prepared for an interesting surprise. As different as the several traditions may be, their similarities are often more striking. This fact was driven home in conversation with some of my Buddhist and Hindu colleagues, who at various times have accused me of reading deeply in their sacred traditions. Nothing could be further from the truth, for although I have read and benefited much, my real exposure is only a mile wide and an inch deep. The equation occurs not in the level of the traditions in question, but rather in terms of what we all share, spirit. So start anywhere you want, with a reasonable expectation of arrival at all other points. Experiencing spirit. No book in the world can substitute for the experience of spirit, and your opportunities to have that experience are limited only by your willingness to try. Take any moment in time. This one, for example. Close your eyes, breathe deeply, and imagine the face of one you love. Let the memories pass through of all the places you went and the things you did. Don't hold on to any of those. Just let them go. Concentrate on the face and let it be there. If you are not careful, you will encounter his or her spirit. Stripped of time and space, elevated above the comings and goings of daily life, spirit is. And beneath the spirit of that person is a larger world of spirit, which you may sense but not know. Try it. Spirit is available whenever we are available to it. It is not so much a matter of taking a lot of time, but of having intention. A silly mind game, perhaps, but it is often necessary to trick the mind into stopping thinking, for thoughts more often than not get in the way of spirit. Invoking spirit, however, is not a party game, 
And although the little exercise I have just suggested may bring you to the edge of spirit, it cannot substitute for more extended practice, which is what meditation, by whatever name or form, is all about. At this point, I can imagine some of you smiling knowingly, as if to say, I knew it. Sooner or later, he was going to have us in the lotus position. Frankly, I can't get into the lotus position. And although it has proven useful for many generations or experienced spirit watchers, it is not my cup of tea, nor do I believe that it is essential to the process. But disciplined practice is. Because there are any number of classes and teachers, usually no further away than your local church, synagogue, or temple, suggesting one or several is hardly the point. But if one does not work, do not despair. Just keep your eyes open. Following the footprints of spirit requires practice, and as any athlete knows, disciplined exercise is essential. But not all exercise forms are appropriate for you. Keep looking. Given the fact that we live in a world seemingly bent on collective suicide, to say nothing of a business environment apparently out to destroy us, you may wonder how you can afford the apparent luxury of spirit watching. I can only suggest that under the circumstances, you can't afford not to. The next time you find yourself in the cauldron of change, which is likely to be tomorrow morning, with responsibility for yourself and your colleagues, being able to intuit the flow of spirit in others and to ground or center spirit in yourself is likely to make the difference between realizing new opportunity and chalking up disaster. I don't think you can afford to be ill-prepared. Practice Leading There is a general myth of powerlessness, and even such enlightened folks as the readers of this book are likely to fall prey. It is, after all, easier, more advisable, or appropriate to leave leadership to others who can then assume the blame. We all do it, but I think you will agree that the time for such self-indulgence is rapidly running out. Even when we have cast off the myth of powerlessness, the temptation is always to wait for the big one, that moment in history when the trumpets sound and we are called to the battlements. Unfortunately, when that moment arrives, we are usually not ready. We must take the opportunity to practice leadership whenever and wherever we are. For example, the next time a friend or colleague is terminated, you will have the chance to be with them through shock, anger, memories, the dumps, and on into open space, imagination, and vision. Take the opportunity to practice creating space and asking, and always ask questions. Check the flow of spirit and see what happens if you start providing answers and not questions. Check your own spirit for those telltale signs of anxiety that seemingly force you to exercise control. Or or let's say you are part of a secretarial pool or a small design team. For a while now, you have been doing the same thing and doing it very well, so well in fact that you actually enjoy what you are doing. Then one day, from the Olympian heights, comes the word, the group is through and the work is done. It's all over, baby. Guess what? You have another opportunity to help your fellows and yourself, while simultaneously enhancing your your capacity for leadership. The occasion for practice is omnipresent, regardless of your perceived station in life. Whether you are on top of the heap or scarcely on the playing field, the opportunities are there. And what does all this have to do with imminent global disaster? Nothing and everything. Quite obviously, your friend's job loss or the demise of your working group will probably have minuscule impact on the global scene. But every time we practice and develop our innate capacity for leadership, it can only improve. 
So when the big one does come, as it probably will, we will be ready. And when might that be? Who knows? Even the two young ladies at OCF could have had no premonition that they were going to exercise such a major role in the turnaround of spirit in that place. Yet, even if the big one never comes, practice is not in vain, for I think you will discover that as you enrich the spirit of others, so your own spirit will grow. And who knows, perhaps it is your role not to lead the charge, but rather to feed the ball to those who will. Whoever has the ball is the leader. But as we know by now, ball hogs die. Reprise As Rome was not built in a day, so our capacity for leadership is not brought to peak performance with a single iteration from learning to experience and on to practice. It is only when our practice of leadership is repetitively grounded in our learning, as enriched by our experience, that peak levels begin to emerge. There are no magic wands here, nor is there any cause for despair. The leadership we need is available in all of us. We have only to make it manifest. Thank you for watching. Please like, subscribe, and visit my channel for more exciting content.